Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. I, um, I'm excited to be speaking this morning. It feels like it's been a long time since I've had this opportunity. I really love preaching. I, I love preaching to you, my church family, because I really I feel this familyness about us. I feel connected in a way that it's unlike any relationships I have any, anywhere else in my life. And so I enjoy this opportunity to come and preach from God's Word because I'm here with you. And I don't, I know I stand on a bit of a platform, but I want us, I want us to remember often that I'm a member just as you're a member and we are together in this mission. We are together in seeking out truth. And so as we walk through Scripture, let us see that it's true for all of us. And my prayer and hope this morning is that as we continue in the book of Mark, that we see that Jesus is real, but that we see who the real Jesus is. And that, and that not only do we grow in knowledge, but that we continue to grow in affection for our Savior and understanding of what Scripture is calling us to be and, and who our God is and what that means for us. And so we've been in this book a while, though we're only in chapter 5. It's been challenging for me, and hopefully it has been for you as well. This morning we're going to look at a, a story that is, is going to reveal a lot about who Jesus is, but also... I think we'll, we'll find our ability to relate to the, the characters in the story very easily. Uh, we've seen that, that Jesus is not what culture often sees Him as, uh, our culture, that is, that he, uh, he doesn't hold back like some people may think. I think often we paint this picture of this religious Jesus with long feathery hair, a very pale complexion, blue eyes. Definitely not what he looked like, but also the character of Jesus is often seen as this soft man, this this guy who's passive and everybody likes him. He's super friendly. Everybody gets along. But that's not what we're seeing exactly here in Scripture because it seems that he causes a lot of controversy. It seems that he's very abrasive to some people. It looks more like there's groups of people who either love this guy because they can't figure him out and they want to be around him. They want to know more about him or they hate him. Because they can't figure him out. And he's a threat to them. And we see these two groups of people dividing more and more as the story goes on. Uh, but the ones that like him are outnumber the ones that don't greatly. And in fact, they're crowding him. So last week we talked about he got in a boat and he went across the sea or a few weeks ago. And then he encountered a man possessed with demons. So he can't get away from people who are needy because everybody's needy. Well, he gets back in the boat t- today. We're going to talk about he's going back to where he was with the crowds have gathered. And when we read this story, we want to see, we've seen Jesus display power over nature when he calmed the storm. We've seen Jesus display power over demons just this last week. An army of demons were cast out of this man. And we're going to see Jesus today emphasize power over sickness and death. But he does, does it in a way that is, is better than just a powerful man. He does it in a way that engages individuals and And hopefully we can feel that just as much as we hear it today. So the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, what we know as the gospel, is incredibly meaningful. And if we believe it, if we love Jesus, if we believe it, it changes everything. But if we don't, nothing changes. In fact, we're we're left seeking hope everywhere else. And we're never going to find it. And that's abundantly clear in what we're going to read. So if you want to open to Mark chapter 5. It's a quite uh, long passage. Normally, when I preach, I have someone read before. Uh, we already read a long passage this morning. I know there's 
so much our selfish attentions can handle, but also uh, I think it's good for us in this particular passage to walk through it slowly. I think as we see it unfold, it's going to be more beneficial, at least that's how it was for me. When I approach a, a text that's familiar to me, it's a story I've heard. I grew up hearing stories about Jesus, and from, especially from the Gospels. And so we look at it and we see it as a familiar story. We can easily just accept it as it is. But I want to challenge you, as I was challenged, to look at it fresh. See it as something you don't know. So pretend with me if you know the story that you don't know what's coming. And if you don't know the story, then good. You're exactly where you need to be. All right, so Matthew chapter 5, verses 21, or verse 21 is where we're going to start. You can, as a primer, search for this resounding need for hope. We all have this need for hope. And we're going to see Christ is that hope, hopefully. (laughs) All right. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, came back to the side we're used to him being on, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. So Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, it, that means he's an administrative guy there. He, he takes care of the maintenance needs of the building. He organizes religious gatherings. He, he's not a clergyman. He's not a Pharisee, but he is under the authority of the Pharisees. So he, he's in agreement with them. He is a religious leader in that, in that sense. So he, he is known in this area. He's, he's probably wealthy. People respect him. He has a position uh, that, that many look up to. And so they know who he is. Mark gives him a name. He doesn't often do that. So he's obviously an important person here. And he, if he agrees with the Pharisees, we know that he probably isn't very outspoken supportive of Jesus, if he is supportive of Jesus at all. So it would be safe to guess that Jairus is not open about his affections for Jesus, but we don't know that for sure. We just know that he is coming to Jesus in this moment, and so we can expect some confrontation, or at least everyone around would expect there to be confrontation. Verse 22. Then came, one of the, or back, then came one of the rulers from the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implore, implored earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. So this is surprising. Jairus, a religious leader, comes to Jesus, falls to his feet, and begs him for help. No doubt everyone around is shocked because this is an act of reverence. This is an act of worship. Jews bow to no one but God. And he's bowing before this man who is seen by the religious leaders as a renegade, a renegade rabbi, a teacher. But to them, he's no teacher at all. He's just causing issues. They don't like him. They want to put him away. If it weren't for the crowds that were following him, they would arrest him but they don't want to risk the crowds turning against them, so they let him continue on. But now this religious leader goes to him. Onlookers are no doubt shocked, especially considering that he's begging Jesus for help. Everything about the situation is telling us Jairus is desperate. He has has paid doctors to fix his daughter, and they've all failed him. 
He has done all the, the tricks, the methods that the Jews would practice back in the day to, to solve the problems. That They don't know what's wrong with her. Obviously, she's dying and they can't save her. It's to the point where there's nothing else to do but go to Jesus. He, he clearly knows who Jesus is. He's, he's known about the healings of Jesus. He's aware that this guy can do things. And, and what's most surprising to me is he seems to believe it. This, this father, desperate to save his little girl, believes Jesus can do it. And I think the Pharisees believed it too, but they wouldn't go to him. So this is huge. And why wouldn't he believe Jesus can heal? Jesus has a perfect healing record. He's undefeated when it comes to anything that comes against him. He has is, he is the power to heal that's never failed. Not once, not even for a second. It didn't hesitate like, oh, must have did it wrong. Never not healed. Double negative intentionally. And so Jairus goes in. We see all over the New Testament, people that come to Jesus, isolated stories, they get healed. Jairus goes to him knowing that. And more explicitly, Luke 4, 40 says, Now when the sun was setting, all who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid hands on every one of them, and healed them. So not just the specific stories that we've read where he heals people. Everyone who's sick. Everyone who's in need. Every single one. He laid hands on them. And they were healed. So Jairus has heard this. He uses the phrase, come lay your hands on her so that she may be made well. He knows this about Jesus. He's put his hope in this because his hope has been put everywhere else and it's failed him. He's desperate for the salvation of his daughter. He wants her saved from death. And I use the word salvation because when he says made well, the Old Testament, the Greek Old Testament uses this phrase often and it's translated deliverance in a physical way. So healing and and rescue from, from danger. So he's using that word. But in the New Testament, we see it take on this nuance and it's translated most often salvation. This word means to be saved. And in any culture, saving from death, from danger, from whatever is obvious. But there's there's clearly spiritual implications here. It's not just a physical death, a physical, a fear of physical death that needs to be there for Jairus. There needs to be this concern for something spiritual. And of course, Jesus knows this. But no one around can fathom what Jesus could accomplish. The truth is, Jesus could heal Jairus' daughter from where they're standing. But Jairus doesn't know that. He knows he needs to come with me. He needs to lay hands on my daughter to heal her. And so he asks, and Jesus goes. Which has got to be this glimmer of hope. Now most of us, most in here are not fathers. I am. I feel this weight of desiring everything good for my child. So having tried everything to save his life, Everything failed and there's just one thing left. But I have to humble myself and go to this man who I know can heal him. And then he agrees to come knowing who I am. A religious leader against him. There's got to be this hope rising in Jairus. They're on their way. The crowds are heavy, but they're on their way. So let's point out this one other thing before we go on. The crowds following him, thronged about him. I don't use that word often. Anybody here use the word throng recently? The crowds thronged about him. All right, so this, this understanding is these, they're huge crowds, thousands of people following this one guy. Everybody's trying to get close to him. Now they're going to travel down the streets of this town. They're smashed together. 
like bumping into each other. Imagine being at a big conference. You're just going the pace of the crowd because you can't move any faster. They're thronging. I don't know if you can make it like that. They're thronging about him. And Luke's telling the story. He, said, he says it in a way that emphasizes it's difficult to even breathe. They're all over the place. So picture this. We're there in this story. Jesus is going to this man's house to save his daughter. We're going to get to see it happen. Verse 25. It's about to be interrupted. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garment, I may be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. So we have a woman here who's disrupted the story. Mark often does this. It's a sandwich of stories. So he's going to finish Jairus' story, but there's one right here in the middle that's very much connected. So this woman comes up behind him and she touches his garment because she has suffered this disease for years. Twelve years. And the disease, the, the issue of blood, you may have heard it called that, this discharge of blood is this ongoing, frequent, and irregular menstruation. This discharge of blood for 12 years is ridiculous. Some, like half the room in here, have no way of relating to this. But even those who could, 12 years. And to make matters worse, she's a Jew, and so this doesn't just mean that she's physically in pain and suffering this ongoing disease. But according to Jewish law, she's unclean. Because this time of the month for women, they're to go outside the camp because they're unclean. It's in, it's in the Leviticus. We can see. So, so what do we do if it never ends? Leviticus 15, 25 addresses this. It says, if a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge, she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. So what does this mean? This means this woman has a disease that makes her permanently an outcast. Among the Jews, she has no one. She's ceremonially unclean. The Levitical passage goes on to talk about not only is she unclean, but everything that belongs to her, her furniture, her bed, everything, if you touch any of it, you're unclean. If you touch her, you're unclean. So this means her family, she's, she's not receiving physical affection from her husband. If she has kids, she can't even hug her kids. Her parents can't touch her. She's got to be away from everyone. Even if they were willing to break the law and be unclean for her sake, she would be guilty of making them unclean. So she wouldn't want to do that because it's against their religious system. And it's, it's not just the physical pain she's suffering. But it's this ongoing difficulty emotionally, feeling unwanted, unloved, ashamed. And, and you may wonder, why would there be such a law? This is the Word of God. Why would there be such a law? Well, God gave the law as a gracious gift. Many of the laws protected the people, but also they were symbolic of many things. So, so most clearly, this concept of being unclean was necessary for God to put in place. It's a means by which God demonstrates the effects of sin. There's, there's no way for us to feel the weight of sin unless we see the consequences. 
So God gave them consequences. You're unclean. Spiritually, we're unclean as sinners. But for for them to get a physical picture of it, you are unclean. And, And the Jews took this seriously. In fact, they took it too far. And it's brought about much more difficult things as sin often does. And so this woman, because of sin, she has a disease. Because of the law that protects the people, she's now even more ashamed, even more abandoned. So physicians at the time, understand this is like 1800 years before we understand the pathology of disease, much less how to cure them. So physicians at the time were just doing their best. Some think they were even exploiting this woman. It says she spent all that she had on physicians. So, so the good ones, like if you're rich, you can pay for the good ones. And they'll give you like toxins and ointments to rub on things and hope it does stuff. Toxins usually do things, but it never really makes it better. It tells us she's worse off now after spending all she has to be cured of the disease. And even the Jewish laws that were applicable for anyone, even they were more ridiculous than drinking a toxin. Like, I'm telling you they're ridiculous. You're still not going to believe it when I tell you what they are. The Talmud, which is the oral, uh, the oral commentary for the Torah, the law, it says, the first way of curing this particular disease, you're to carry the ashes of an ostrich egg in a linen rag around your neck in the summer, but in a cotton rag around your neck in the winter. The second one, carry the barley corn from the dung of a white female donkey. And the third one, drink wine with onions. That's probably the best one. If nothing else, it can ease the pain. Unless you don't like onions, then you're in trouble. Obviously, this woman has, has experienced some difficult things. Even if, if the extreme of drinking toxins, things getting worse, her, her physical disease that she already had is, is increasingly worse. But also, she's done all these ridiculous things, jumped through hoops, put her hope in many foolish attempts to cure herself of the disease. Feeling this weight of depression and loneliness that I know many in here have felt. I've felt this. Feeling absolutely hopeless. And then she remembers Jesus. I know Jesus can heal the sick. If I could just get close enough, too ashamed to approach him, she wants to just sneak up behind him and touch his clothes. And she believes that if she could just do that, it could heal her. Clearly, she's a superstitious woman. She's tried it all. She's paid all that she had to find the the, the cure to the disease. So this one, one more act, free act, no harm, no foul, just sneak up behind him and touch his garment. And it works. It says immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Verse 30, and Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out of him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? Now we'll see in a minute that the disciples are like, what? Uh, Everybody? I don't know the answer to the question. Is this a trick? So Jesus perceives power leaving his body through his clothes. So just pause for a second. That's amazing. This is an incredible revelation about our God. So God, not this deist God who has great power, but he's detached from the the humans. He doesn't just create things and just see what happens. He's not wielding his power 
unaware of its effect. In fact, he's so intimately involved, personally connected, that he can feel his power leave him. He can feel the need we have for healing and salvation. He knows our needs and he is so attuned to his power that he knows when it leaves, despite the fact that everyone is bumping into him. So we don't have this passive God. We don't have this God who's unaware of our needs. We don't have this God who just does what he pleases and he doesn't care what effect it has. He knows, he's aware, and he's moved by it. God feels our need, which means he also feels the power of wrath poured out on all sinners for all eternity, which is why sin grieves God. That's why he hates it. It's destroying his creation. And so he feels the power of judgment on all those who suffer. But he also feels the power to save and heal. So he knows power has left him. And he says, who touched me? Verse 31. And his disciples say to him, "Uh, you see the crowd pressing all around you. And yet you say, who touched me? And so they're clearly perplexed and maybe a little sarcastic. I imagine it's Peter because he often speaks before talking. Verse 32. And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So he is searching for this woman. Now, this is Jesus we're talking about, so he he knows what's going on. Yet he searches for this woman. This is the un relenting seeking of our God that he would come after us this is irresistible grace that he I believe that she didn't come forward he would continue searching he seeks to save the lost and and what's more is Jesus doesn't just turn around and say hey lady why'd you touch me like he gives her this opportunity to say it was me I needed you. I came to you. I did this. And, and she is bold enough to do so. And, and with this fear and trembling, it says. And I don't think it's a fear and trembling like she's terrified she's in trouble. Like, oh no, what did I do? Because it says knowing what had happened to her. So this fear she's feeling is an intimidation of the greatness of this man she just touched. It's the, it's the fear the disciples felt in the boat but not during the storm, after the storm. They were afraid during the storm for their lives. But after the storm, when Jesus just said stop and it stopped, there was a new fear there. Like, uh... So this woman with fear and trembling because she has just felt the power also, comes to him and tells him everything. She tells him all the truth. And he comforts her He calls her daughter. Never does he call anyone daughter. Before then and after then, this is the only time he does it. Daughter, your faith has made you well. This is a tender and compassionate moment in the midst of chaos. This is a tender and compassionate moment. There's there's no reason he would call her daughter if, if not to signify she's been saved. He addresses her as family. He tells her her faith has made her well. The same phrase we saw earlier. Her faith has saved her. 
She was superstitious from the beginning. In fact, it's a, it's a well-known thing throughout history that great men, people would try to even touch their garments. This isn't just unique to the Bible. Alexander the Great, stories are told of him. People would want to just bump up against him so they could maybe get some of his power. So she was thinking superstitiously. It didn't seem to be just faith in Jesus, but she went to Jesus. And he felt the power leave him and something was different. Now this wasn't magic. This magic didn't happen here. And it wasn't a reward that she got for paying a physician. She's not giving to the ministry. Buy this prayer quilt and you'll receive healing for years. It's none of that. This isn't superstition. This is something she's never felt before. She's in fear and trembling before this man. It's also not anything she's earned, though it may seem like she had faith. She acted on the faith. She got salvation because that is what happened. But it's not that she put forth effort and because of her effort, she has earned salvation. So he's telling her, it's not because you touched me. It's because of your faith that you're healed. It's because of your faith that you're saved. This woman with a bleeding problem was willing to make Jesus ceremonially unclean. So in fact, she's not righteous But she's incredibly selfish. She's going to risk it all to make this rabbi unclean. Not to mention everyone she bumped into on the way to him. Everybody's unclean now. Because this woman wants her healing. But the most beautiful thing happens. Despite her sin. Despite her failure. Despite her selfishness. Jesus saves her. It's amazing. She's done nothing to earn it. In fact, she doesn't deserve it at all. Yet she's made well. And you can see this in our lives so clearly. What what really what I think is most interesting is that you consider the people who go about Christian life. Though many are not Christians at all, you can be around Jesus your whole life like this crowd is. You can talk about Him. You can learn about Him. You can sing songs about Him. You can be moved by Him and and feel inspired by Him. You can even go to church. You can join a Bible study. You can join some Christian group at school. Whatever you want to do. You can claim to be Jesus. You can even appear to be a follower of Jesus like this crowd. But it's possible to be very much bumping up against Jesus and never really touch Him. Because everybody's touching Him. But only she drew this power that saved. And Jesus makes this point to turn around and tell her, look, it's because of your faith. It wasn't just following the crowd. Make no mistake, face to face with Jesus, she was known by Jesus. But before that, she was known by Jesus. He knew her needs. He knew she needed healing of that sin. He knew this event would come about. He knows all things. Why wouldn't he know this? The the power that saved her was the very power that drew her to Jesus. Faith was put in her as a gift from God. We see this elsewhere in Scripture. Faith is a gift from God and it's by faith we're saved. Not by works, not by her effort, not by her touching. By her faith she was saved. And so Jesus makes public what she determined to keep secret by calling her out. And with fear and trembling she says, it was me. And he responds by calling her daughter. And so I believe we'll see this woman in heaven. She doesn't have a name here. But we'll know her name one day 
And it's amazing that this unnamed woman who was an outcast for 12 years straight is now part of the family of God and, and a daughter. And this is incredible. But speaking of daughter, what about Jairus, right? His daughter is dying. And so Jesus is supposed to be rushing right behind Jairus to save the life of his daughter. Who we find out later is 12 years old. This woman's been suffering for as many years as this girl's been alive. Surely she can wait 12 more minutes, right? 12 years, 12 minutes. Jairus has got to be growing impatient in this moment. He's got to be more anxious. He had this glimmer of hope and now it's crushed again. His hopes were high. Now his daughter's dying. And Jesus is talking to this woman in the street. She's already healed. Let's move on, right? So anyone, anyone feel this before in life? Praying? Desiring God to do something? Some of you know this very intimately because your prayer is specifically, God, save my child. What are you doing? Why have you not saved them? Certainly you have the power to save. You're able, you're willing. Why are you not doing it? What Jairus doesn't know is everything that Jesus knows, which is a whole lot more than Jairus knows. We feel this pain, we feel this weight, this longing for God to do things when we want Him to do them, how we want Him to do them. What's the deal, God? Why won't you save my child? Why won't you save my dad, my mom? God, why won't you do something? I know you can. This growing impatience in Jairus is so familiar to me. And I imagine it's familiar to you. In verse 35, it gets worse. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. While troubled, while troubled the te- why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. So she's gone now. She's died. Not dying, dead. It's too late. Why bother Jesus anymore, they say. So so this is bad. This is his worst nightmare come true. Anxiety has reached a peak of falling into despair. and, And he is totally at a loss, no doubt. But Jesus, not dismayed at all by the news, overhearing what they said, tells him, don't fear, only believe. Overhearing what they said, another way it could be translated, but we wouldn't understand it if it was, it says, hear carelessly. So he hears them carelessly. Overhear what they said. In other words, he's ignoring what he's just heard them say. Mark's wanting us to understand. Jesus hears them, but it's not that big a deal. His daughter's dead. Jesus hears it, but it's not that big a deal. So ignoring what they say, he says... Don't fear, only believe. Which sounds great, but believe in what? The circumstances can't be worse. You have the power to save. You have the power to heal. I've seen you done it. I've heard, your, heard the stories, but you failed because you had to talk to this lady. And, and his daughter is dead. That's the end. There's nothing that overcomes death that anyone knows about. What, what hope is there? What is he supposed to believe in? Now, he could take some cues from this woman who just got healed, who had faith to be healed, 
and saw Jesus do the impossible. But instead, he, he just kind of goes along with the moment and they begin to go, continue to go to his house. And there's still this one thing left that Jairus can do. And so he's banking on it. He's just going to follow. He's just going to go with what Jesus says. Rather than being overwhelmed by the circumstances, maybe it's a bit of denial, whatever it is, he focuses on Jesus and he just continues to believe. So Jesus commands it. He doesn't just request it or suggest it. He commands it because he's the one that gives faith. And he says, believe. Verse 37 And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. This is the inner circle of disciples that we'll hear more about in future sermons. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw uh, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in to where the child was. So this is a first century Jewish funeral. Probably nothing any of us have attended for two reasons. One, you don't live there. Two, it was the first century. So this culture is far different than ours. Our, our funerals are very somber. You go in, you stay quiet. Sometimes like New Orleans, they do it big. So there's parts of our culture that's a little different. But for the most part, you don't go to a funeral where there's a lot of wailing and mourning loudly. Maybe the, the widow or widower is crying, but they've had their time to grieve, and now this is a time of coming together and having memories. So our funerals are very different from what's going on here. And they obviously knew she was dying. They had these people come in to, to, to do this. In fact, in this time, it was you had to do this. It was required of you to have wailers at your funeral. So there were people who were professional mourners. Professional whalers, not like hunting for whales. Professional mourners would come and they would cry at the funeral so that the family would feel more comfortable crying loudly, so that friends could gather around, so that commotion is going about them. So that's probably, that's probably why in verse 40 they're able to stop and laugh because these are not really emotionally attached mourners. They're just professionals. And they are knowledgeable of what death looks like because it's their profession. So they know she's dead. This guy's an idiot. They're mocking him. Jesus kicks everyone out, takes just his boys and the mom and dad, and they go into where the daughter is lying dead. And Jesus says, she's not dead. She's just sleeping. Which is interesting because the Apostle Paul goes on to write letters to churches in the future, and he uses that phrase for, for Christians who have, dead, who have died. He says they're just sleeping. Which is a beautiful idea that sleeping, we awake, and our, our being awake is being with God forever. It's just this, this passing. I mean, death is what we fear most because it's so mysterious. Every culture in the world's history has feared death like this. But Jesus is giving it a new picture. He's changing. He's flipping things around. This isn't death. This is just sleeping. Verse 41. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha komi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know of this and told them to give her something to eat. So two things happen in this last verse. Give her something to eat. So she's been sick a while. Maybe she hasn't eaten in a while. She's going to be hungry. She was just dead. So give her some food. 
is showing that she's right back. Like, no therapy necessary. She doesn't have to ease right into it. She pops up and she's walking. She's 12 years old. She's doing what 12-year-olds do. She's fully charged. Let's go. Give me some food. I'm hungry. And they're amazed at it. Yet he tells them, don't tell anyone. It's again this messianic secret. This, there's not yet time for it to be known who Jesus truly is. That no, one, no one knows yet that he has power over death. So maybe everyone outside just assumes, okay, I guess she was sleeping. That's weird. But these who are close, who are there, they know she's dead and they see this miracle. Jesus has power over death. Nothing has power over death. Everyone dies. In fact, this girl's going to die again. Like everyone does. But in this moment, this, this beautiful this beautiful redemption, this beautiful reuniting of a family. They're amazed. Now, if this girl belongs to Jesus, this is actually not good news for her. Because she's being brought back to pain and suffering and difficulties of this world. But this is, this is the symbol to these, this family. This is a symbol to the disciples. It's now known to us on this side of the resurrection that Jesus has power over death. And this is incredible. But he doesn't do it like he does for Lazarus later on. He doesn't say, Lazarus, come forth to this little girl. In fact, he, he hasn't yet broken sweat over the miracles he's performed. He's not rolling up his sleeves. All right, guys, watch this. Let me conjure up this great power to resurrect this girl. He sits down and he holds her hand. And he says, Talitha kumi, which is Aramaic, the language Jesus spoke. Mark wrote it down in his original language. And he translates it for us. Little girl, arise. But in Aramaic, in this culture, this understanding, is, it's actually a word that means little lamb. This, this word that means precious child. It's, just, it's, it's a word of endearment. It's, it's, you're, my, you're my little girl. You're my sweetie, my honey, whatever you want to put there. This, this darling. It's an intimate moment. It's a sweet moment. It's like a mother waking her child from a nap. My little girl, wake up. It's beautiful that Jesus would take time to slow down the loud mourning going on everywhere, the, the broken hearts in the room, the despair. And he sits down next to this little girl and he just says, get up. And she, like everything else in God's creation, obeys and gets up. Death wasn't too big for God. Death wasn't insurmountable for Jesus. And this has impl implications that goes far deeper than this little girl getting up this one time in this village in the Middle East that we've never been to. This has implications that will affect all of history past and history future. This changes everything. This moment symbolizes something that will change everything. That Jesus has power over death. And so Jesus knew that the delay in the street with the woman was no big deal. Because for him, bringing someone back from the dead really is as simple as waking someone from sleep. And as far as we're concerned, Jesus is our hope. Just like he was for the woman who had the disease. Just like he was for Jairus. Jesus has to be our hope. You can try putting it everywhere else. But everywhere else is going to fail you. You can try. It will fail. Many of you know this. You live life long enough to experience 
the failures of people, the failures of yourself. There is one hope, and it's Jesus. And there's nothing I can say to intellectually convince you of that because you have to be like this woman. You have to be like Jairus. You have to be given faith to believe. And then you take the risk of running through the streets to Jesus. Then you take the risk of humbling yourself from your stature, taking care of yourself from your intellectual elitism, whatever it is that's giving you your confidence. You take a rest from that garbage and you see you're nothing without Him. Because what happens when death comes? What happens when the loved ones are gone? What happens when your intellect fails you? What happens when there's an accident and you no longer have your intellect or your physical ability? What happens? What do you do? Where do you put your hope that is sure? Because this hope in Jesus isn't like this wish-washy, wishful thinking that we have in the world. This hope is sure. If you touch my daughter, she will be made well. If I could just touch his garment, I will be made well. If we could just put our hope in Jesus, if we could just have faith, we will be saved. But more than just having faith, Jesus challenges their faith to grow. So we have this picture of wanting something for Jesus, but getting far more than we ever asked for. But it requires far more than we thought we were going to have to sacrifice. Far more than we thought we were going to have to give for this woman who wanted to just sneak up behind him and get her healing. For her, he calls her out. He makes her faith public. He puts it on display. This woman who lives her life in shame and in hiding is now the focal point of a massive crowd. But Jesus doesn't leave her in fear and trembling. He calls her daughter and tells her to go healed, delivered, saved. He calls her daughter when she has felt for 12 years to be without family, to be unloved, to be unwanted. All she wanted was deliverance from this disease and she got far more than she asked for. But it required more than she thought she was going to have to give. And Jairus Thought he was going to humble himself, go to this guy as a religious leader. He's just going to go to this guy and ask for, he's just going to risk it. Maybe Jesus would come and heal his daughter. And then he does. But he doesn't make it in time and his daughter dies. And so it's far more than he thought he was going to endure. The devastation came. His worst nightmare came true. Yet Jesus gives him far more than he asked for. He wanted a healing, a miraculous healing, yes. But he got a resurrection. I'd say that's an upgrade in miracles. The same is true for us. We invest all of us. We give it all. And as you go along in this journey of life as a Christian, there will be more required. If you're serious about it, if you're picking up your cross and following Jesus, there will be far more required of than you, than you know right now. You're going to give way more to this than you would ever think. It's not your life. You don't belong to you. You're His now. But the reward what we get is so much greater than anything we could sacrifice. But you'll never know if you don't put your hope in Jesus. But church, we can be comforted to know Jesus knows our needs better than we know our needs. He knows what's for our good better than we know what's for our good. If you think that you have this, this truth this secret truth, if you think you know what's best objectively true for you, 
and for everyone else, if you think you can claim what's true for everybody, if you think you have it figured out, if you think you know where to put your hope, if you're finding your confidence somewhere and you're sure about it, no doubt it's going to fail. And then the worst comes. And we're left in despair. Or maybe we do believe. Maybe we do have our faith in Jesus. And it's just a matter of strengthening the faith that needs to happen. And so this delay of answering a prayer. This delay in seeing salvation in loved ones lives. This delay that Jesus is about. Is not for your detriment. And you can put your hope in that. It's, there's no inconsistency in God's love for us because there's a delay. In fact, the delay is because He loves you. He knows what's best. It's growing your faith. Jairus would have been amazed to see Jesus heal his daughter. But even more so, he's amazed to see Jesus raise his daughter from the dead. So hang on. It's as if Jesus is saying to us, as he grabbed this woman and called her daughter, as he held this little girl's hand, it's as he's saying to us, hang on. As long as I've got your hand, even death is just sleep. It's a good night's sleep. There's nothing we can't overcome. There's nothing too big. Put your hope in me. It's sure. And so church, let's put our hope in Jesus. Tomorrow we'll celebrate a holiday, the 4th of July. That's just the day, but that's what we call it. Independence Day, we'll celebrate it. Our country is, despite all the flaws, despite the many difficulties, despite the coming election, our country is still great, even without Donald Trump. Our country is great. It's the, it really is the greatest country in the world. Our freedom is precious. And we'll celebrate that freedom tomorrow. And it's, it's a good celebration. I encourage you, celebrate. And it'll be good. And it'll be something worth celebrating. But, but we can't miss that freedom in America pales in comparison to freedom in Jesus. We may be the greatest country in the world. We truly experience a greater freedom than, than many, than million, billions around the world. And it's great. Let's celebrate it. But more than we celebrate anything, let's celebrate Jesus. Even if it's for America tomorrow, be grateful that you've been born as a citizen in this country because you didn't have anything to do with that. Be grateful that God has placed you here to experience the freedoms of this country, but be more so grateful that we can find freedom in Jesus. It's far greater than anything in this world. That we can be born again as citizens of a greater kingdom. And to quote a, my theology professor, he just said it in class one day, and I was like, wait, can we rewind that for a second? So this is a paraphrase because I didn't write it down. But he said, you can gather all the blood spilled on every battlefield of history, and it will not measure up to the value of a single drop of blood from our Savior. So men and women have fought and bled and died for the freedom we have in our country. We should be grateful. But all of it is meaningless in comparison to the sacrifice of Christ. For this woman hemorrhaging for 12 years, unclean, ashamed. For Jairus, who has humbled himself to ask for his daughter to be healed and, and hears that she died and is left 
hopeless once again. And for us who long for Jesus to answer our prayers, who long for things to happen, who long for salvation, who long for for God to come rescue us from the torment of our life. For all of us, Christ has poured out His blood outside of the camp, despising shame. He was nailed to the cross and became weak so that we may be strong. He took on sin and became unclean. He was in a moment of hopelessness, looking towards death, but overcame death in the resurrection, just as this little girl, but he remained resurrected. King of all kings, Lord of lords, and we can put our hope in him. On this side of scripture, seeing all of it as true, confirmed in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we can put our hope in him because on the cross he has purchased for us citizenship to heaven, freedom beyond any freedom we've ever experienced, wholeness beyond anything we could gain for ourselves, freedom from sickness and and death, but not necessarily here. It may come later on. I read a story in in studying this passage of a man who who longed, he read this in, in scripture, he longed for his daughter to be healed and she died. But then God gave him this revelation that she's better off. And we often say that in funerals, we often say she's in a better place or or whatever, to comfort, because it's comforting, yes, right? But he was brought further in that revelation and seeing that she was healed. (laughs) That God answered the prayer. His longing for her was just a selfish desire to keep her near. But his daughter has been freed from the torment of her sickness. And if we could see death as this, this passing through, this step into forever with Jesus... And it's nothing to fear at all because Christ overcame the world and Christ overcame death. And we can take heart. We can put our hope in Jesus. And we can do so confidently because it's a hope that is sure. Father, I thank you so much for your gospel. I thank you that it can, just as a story, engage us but I pray that it be much more than a story. I pray that it would, it would deeply change who we are as we have faith to believe that it's true. And Father, I know that only You can accomplish these things. So I pray for every soul in this place, God, that we would look to something beyond ourselves. That we would feel this emptiness in us and that we would be humble enough to admit we need rescue. We need help. And that we'd be confident enough, not in ourselves or in anything in this world, but in Jesus to bring about the salvation that we can't accomplish on our own and give us the great joy that Jairus and his family had as they celebrated the resurrection of their daughter. God, let us celebrate our salvation in you. Let us see our freedom in you and celebrate life knowing that we have something to celebrate. Let us be grateful for your grace, overwhelmed by your mercy and compassion. And Lord, let us feel, as this woman, let us feel your power change us to be confident that you're real. In Jesus' name, amen.